Chapter twenty three of The Man from Glengarry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. The Man from Glengarry, A Tale of the Ottawa by Ralph Connor. Chapter twenty three. A Good True Friend. It was springtime, and the parks and avenues were in all the dainty splendor of their new leaves. The afternoon May sun was flooding the city with gold and silver light and all the air was tremulous with the singing of birds a good day it was to live if one could only live in the sunny air within sight of the green leaves and within sound of the singing birds a day for life and love it was at least so kate thought as she drew up her prancing team at the sinclair house where harry stood waiting for her dear kate he cried how stunning you are i love you come harry jump up breton is getting excited stony-hearted wretch grumbled harry did you hear me tell you i love you nonsense harry jump in i'll report to lily langford don't tell pleaded harry and do keep breton on all fours this isn't a circus you terrify me we have only time to make the train hurry up cried kate steady my boys some day kate those boys of yours will be your death or the death of some of your friends said harry as he sprang in and took his place beside kate that breton ought to be shot it really affects my heart to drive with you you haven't any harry you know that right well so don't be alarmed quite true said harry sentimentally not since that night don't you remember kate when you-now harry i only remind you that i always tell my girl-friends everything you say it is this wedding that's got into your blood i suppose so murmured harry pensively wish it would get into yours now seriously kate at your years you ought harry said kate indignantly i really don't need you at the station i can meet your aunt quite well without you shall i set you down here or drive you to the office oh not to the office i entreat i entreat anything but that surely i may be allowed this day i shall be careful of your sensitive points but i do hope this wedding of mamie's will give you serious thoughts kate was silent giving her attention doubtless to her team then with seeming irrelevance she said didn't i see colonel thorpe yesterday in town yes the old heathen i haven't forgiven him for taking off ranald as he did he didn't take off ranald ranald was going off anyway how do you know said harry i know replied kate with a little color in her cheek he told me himself well old thorpe was mighty glad to get him i can tell you that the old sinner he's just a dear cried kate yes he was glad to get ranald what a splendid position he gave him oh yes i know he adores you like all the rest and so you think him a dear but this kate ignored for the team were speeding along at an alarming pace with amazing skill and dash she threaded her way through the crowded streets with almost no checking of her speed do be careful cried harry as the wheels of their carriage skimmed the noses of the car-horses i am quite sure my aunt will not be able to recognize me and why not because i shall be gray-haired by the time i reach the station there's the train i do believe cried kate flourishing her whip over her horses backs we must not be late if we ever get there alive said harry 
Here we are, sure enough. Shall I go to the train? No, indeed, cried Kate. Do you think I'm going to allow anyone to meet my Aunt Murray but myself? I shall go. You hold the horses. I am afraid, really, cried Harry, pretending terror. Oh, I fancy you will do, cried Kate, smiling sweetly as she ran off to meet the incoming train. In a few moments she returned with Mrs. Murray and carrying a large black valise. "'Hello, Auntie dear,' cried Harry. "'You see, I can't leave these brutes of Kate's, but believe me, it does me good to see you. What a blessing a wedding is to bring you to us. I suppose you won't come again until it is Kate's or mine.' "'That would be sure to bring me,' cried Mrs. Murray, smiling her bright smile, "'provided you married the right persons.' why auntie said harry dismally kate is so unreasonable she won't take even me you see she's so tremendously impressed with herself and all the fellows spoil her by this time kate had the reins and harry had climbed into the back seat dear old auntie he said kissing his aunt i am really delighted to see you but to return to kate look at her doesn't she look like a roman princess now harry do be sensible or i shall certainly drive you at once to the office said kate severely oh the heartlessness of her she knows well enough that colonel thorpe is there and she would shamelessly exult over his abject devotion she respects neither innocent youth nor gray hairs as witness myself and colonel thorpe isn't he a silly boy auntie said kate and he is not much improving with age but what's this about colonel thorpe said mrs murray sometimes ranald writes of him in high terms too well you ought to hear thorpe abuse ranald says he's ruining the company with his various philanthropic schemes said harry but you can never tell what he means exactly he's a wily old customer don't believe him auntie said kate with a sagacious smile Colonel Thorpe thinks that the whole future of his company and of the province depends solely upon Ranald. It is quite ridiculous to hear him, while all the time he is abusing him for his freaks. "'It must be a great country out there, though,' said Harry, "'and what a row they are making over Confederation.' "'What do you mean, Harry?' said Mrs. Murray. "'We hear so little in the country.' well i don't know exactly but those fellows in british columbia are making all sorts of threats that unless this railway is built forthwith they will back out of the dominion and some of them talk of annexation with the united states don't i wish i was there what a lucky fellow ranald is thorpe says he's a big gun already no end of a swell of course as manager of a big concern like the british american coal and lumber company he is a man of some importance i don't think he's taking much to do with public questions said kate though he did make a speech at new westminster not long ago he has been up in those terrible woods almost ever since he went hello how do you know said harry looking at her suspiciously i get a fragment of a note from ranald now and then but he's altogether too busy to remember humble people i hear regularly from coley you remember coley don't you said kate turning to mrs murray oh yes that's the lad in whom ranald was so interested in the institute yes replied kate coley begged and prayed to go with ranald and so he went she omits to state said harry 
that she also begged and prayed and further that she outfitted the young rascal though i've reason to thank providence for removing him to another sphere how does it affect you said mrs murray why haven't you heard aunt murray of the tremendous heights to which i have attained i suppose she didn't tell you of her dinner-party that was after you had left last fall it was a great bit of generalship some of ranald's football friends little merrill starry hamilton that's the captain you know and myself among them were asked to a farewell supper by this young lady and when the men had well drunk fed i mean and were properly dissolved in tears over the prospect of ranald's departure at a critical moment the institute was introduced as a side issue it was dear to ranald's heart a most effective picture was drawn of the institute deserted and falling into ruins so to speak with kate heroically struggling to prevent utter collapse could this be allowed no a thousand times no someone would be found surely who would it be at this juncture kate who had been maintaining a powerful silence smiled upon little merrill who being distinctly inflammable and for some mysterious reason devoted to ranald and for an even more mysterious reason devoted to kate swore he'd follow if some one would lead what could i do my well-known abilities naturally singled me out for leadership so to prevent any such calamity i immediately proposed that if starry hamilton the great football chief would command this enterprise i would follow before the evening was over the institute was thoroughly manned it is nearly half true aunt said kate and by our united efforts continued harry the institute has survived the loss of ranald i cannot tell you how overjoyed i am harry that both of my boys are taking hold of such good work you here and ranald in british columbia he must have a very hard time of it but he speaks very gratefully of colonel thorp who he says often opposes but finally agrees with his proposals harry laughed aloud agrees does he and do you know why i remember seeing him one day and he was in a state of wild fury at ranald's notions i won't quote his exact words the next day i found him in a state of bland approval then i learn incidentally that in the meantime kate has been giving him tea and music don't listen to his mean insinuations auntie said kate blushing a little mrs murray turned and looked curiously into her face and smiled and then kate blushed all the more i think that may explain some things that have been mysterious to me she said oh what auntie cried harry i am most anxious to know never mind said mrs murray i will explain to kate that won't help me any she is a most secretive person twiddles us all round her fingers and never lets us know anything until it's done it is most exasperating oh i say kate added harry suddenly would you mind dropping me at the florist's here why oh i see said kate drawing in her team how do you do lily harry is anxious to select some flowers she said bowing to a very pretty girl on the sidewalk kate do stop it besought harry in a low voice as he leaped out of the carriage good-bye auntie i'll see you this evening don't believe all kate tells you he added as they drove away are you too tired for a turn in the park said kate or shall we drive home 
A drive is always pleasant. Besides, one can talk about some things with more freedom in a carriage than face to face in one's room. The horses require attention at critical moments, and there are always points of interest when it is important that conversation should be deflected from the subject in hand. So, since Mrs. Murray was willing, Kate turned into the park. For an hour they drove along its shady, winding roads, while Mrs. Murray talked of many things, but mostly of Ranald, and of the tales that the Glengarry people had of him. For wherever there was lumbering to be done, sooner or later, there Glengarry men were to be found, and Ranald had found them in the British Columbia forests. And to their people at home their letters spoke of Ranald and his doings, at first doubtfully, soon more confidently, but always with pride. To MacDonald Vane a rare letter came from Ranald now and then, which he would carry to Mrs. Murray with a difficult pretense of modesty. For with MacDonald Vane, Ranald was a great man. But he is not quite sure of him, said Mrs. Murray. He thinks it is a very queer way of lumbering, and the wages he considers excessive. Does he say that? asked Kate. That's just what Colonel Thorpe says his company are saying. But he stands up for Ranald even when he can't see that his way is the best. The Colonel is not very sure about Ranald's schemes for the men, his reading room, library, and that sort of thing, but I'm sure he will succeed. But Kate's tone belied her confident words. Mrs. Murray noticed the anxiety in Kate's voice. At least we are sure, she said gently, that he will do right, and after all that is success. I know that right well, replied Kate but it is hard for him out there with no one to help him or to encourage him. Again Mrs. Murray looked at Kate curiously. It must be a terrible place, Kate went on, especially for one like Ranald, for he has no mind to let things go. He will do a thing as it ought to be done, or not at all. Soon after this Kate gave her mind to her horses, and in a short time headed them for home. What a delightful drive we have had, said Mrs. Murray gratefully, as Kate took her upstairs to her room. I hope I have not worried you with my dismal forebodings, she said, with a little laugh. No, dear, said Mrs. Murray, drawing her face down to the pillow where Kate had made her lay her head. I think I understand, she added in a whisper. Then Kate laid her face beside that of her friend, and whispered, Oh, Auntie, it is so hard for him. But Mrs. Murray stroked her head softly and said, There is no fear, Kate. All will be well with him. Immediately after dinner Kate carried Mrs. Murray with her to her own room, and after establishing her in all possible comfort, she began to read extracts from Coley's letters. Here is the first Auntie. They are more picturesque than elegant, but if you knew Coley you wouldn't mind. You'd be glad to get any letter from him. So saying, Kate turned her back to the window, a position with the double advantage of allowing the light to fall upon the paper, and the shadow to rest upon her face, and so proceeded to read. Dear Miss Kate, we got here, that is to New Westminster, last night, and it is a queer town. The streets run every way, the houses are all built of wood, and almost none of them are painted. 
The streets are full of all sorts of people. I saw lots of Chinamen and Indians. It makes a feller feel kind of queer, as if he was in some foreign country. The hotel where we stopped was a pretty good-looking place. Of course, nothing like the hotel we stopped in at San Francisco. It was pretty fine inside, but after supper, when the crowd began to come into the bar, you never saw such a gang in your life. They knew how to sling their money, I can tell you. And then they begun to yell and cut up. I tell you, it would make the ward seem like a Sunday school. The boss, that's what they call him here, I guess didn't like it much, and I don't think you would either. Next morning we went to look at the mills. They are just sheds with slab roofs. I don't think much of them myself, though I don't know much about mills. The boss went round asking questions, and I don't think he liked the look of them much either. I know he kept his lips shut pretty tight, as we used to see him do sometimes in the Institute. I am awful glad he brought me along. He says I have got to write to you at least once a month, and I've got to take care of my writin' too, and get the spellin' right. When I think of the fellers back in the alleys pitchin' pennies, I tell you I'd rather die than go back. Here a feller feels he's alive. I wish I'd paid more attention to my writin' in the night school, but I guess I was pretty much of a fool them days, and you were awful good to me. The boss says that a man must always pay his way, and when I told him I wanted to pay for them clothes you gave me, he looked kind of funny, but he said, That's right. So I want you to tell me what they cost, and I will pay you first thing, for I'm going to be a man out in this country. We're going up the river next week and see the gangs working up there in the bush. It's kind of lonesome here going along the street and looking people in the faces to see if you can see one you know. Lots of times I thought I did see someone I knew, but it wasn't. Good-bye. I'll write you soon again. Yours truly, Michael Cole. The second letter, Kate went on, is written from the camp, twenty-mile camp, he calls it. He tells how they went up the river in the steamer, taking with them some new hands for their camp, and how these men came on board half drunk, and how all the way up to Yale they were drinking and fighting. It must have been horrible. After that they went on smaller boats and then by wagons. On the roads it must have been terrible. Coley seems much impressed with the big trees. He says, These big trees are pretty hard to write about without saying words the boss don't allow. It makes you think of being in St. Michael's. It's so quiet and solemn-like, and I never felt so small in all my life. The boss and me walked the last part of the way and got to camp late and pretty tired, and the men we brought in with us was all pretty mad, but the boss never paid no attention to em, but went whistling about as if everything was lovely. We had some pork and beans for supper, then went to sleep in a bunk nailed up against the side of the shanty. It was as hard as a board, but I tell you, it felt pretty good. Next day I went wandering round with the foreman and the boss. I tell you, I was afraid to get very far away from him, for I'd be sure to get lost. The bush is that thick that you can't see your own length ahead of you. That night, when the boss and me and the foreman was in the shanty they call the office, after supper, we heard a most awful row. What's that? says the boss. Oh, that's nothing, says the foreman. The boys is having a little fun, I guess. He didn't say anything but went on talking, but in a little while the row got worse, and we heard pounding and smashing. Do you allow that sort of thing? says the boss. 
Well, he says, guess the boys got some whiskey last night. I generally let em alone. Well, says the boss quiet-like, I think you'd better go in and stop it. Not if I know myself, says the foreman. I ain't ordered my funeral yet. Well, we'll go in and see, anyway, says the boss. I tell you I was kind of scared, but I thought I might as well go along. When we got into the sleepin' shanty there was a couple of fellers with handspikes breakin' up the benches and knockin' things around most terrible. Say, boys, yelled the foreman, and then he began to swear most awful. They didn't seem to pay much attention, but kept on knockin' around and swearin'. Come now, says the foreman, kind of coaxin'-like. This ain't no way to act. Get down and behave yourselves. But still they didn't pay no attention. Then the boss walked up to the biggest one, and when he got quite close to him, they all got still looking on. I'll take that handspike, says the boss. Help yourself, says the man, swinging it up. I don't know what happened, it was done so quick, but before you could count three, that feller was on his knees bleeding like a pig, and the handspike was out of the door, and the boss walks up to the other feller and says, Put that handspike outside. He begun to swear. Put it out, says the boss, quiet-like, and the feller backs up and throws his handspike out. And the boss up and speaks and says, Look here, men, I don't want to interfere with nobody, and won't while he behaves himself, but there ain't going to be any row like that in this camp. Say, you ought to have seen em. They sat like the gang used to in the night school. And then he turned and walked out, and we all followed him. I guess they ain't used to that sort of thing in this camp. I heard the men talkin' next day pretty big of what they was goin' to do, but I don't think they'll do much. They don't look that kind. Anyway, if there's goin' to be a fight, I'd feel safer with the boss than with the whole lot of em. The letter after this, went on Kate, tells of what happened the Sunday following. We'd gone out in the afternoon, boss and me, for a walk, and when we got back the camp was just howlin' drunk, and the foreman was worst of all. They kind of quieted down for a little when we come in and let us get into the office, but pretty soon they began actin' up funny again and swearin' most awful. Then I see the boss shut up his lips hard, and I says to myself, look out for blood. Then he starts over for the bunk shanty. I was mighty scared and follered him close. Just as we shoved open the door, a bottle come singin' through the air and smashed to a thousand bits on the beam above. "'Is that the kind of cowards you are?' says the boss, quite cool. He didn't speak loud, but I tell you everybody heard him and got dead still. "'No, boss,' says one feller. "'Not all.' "'The man that threw that bottle,' says the boss, "'is a coward and the meanest kind. He's afraid to step out here for five minutes.' Nobody moved. Step up, ye baste, says an Irishman, or it's meself will kick ye out of the camp. And out the feller comes. It was the same duck that the boss scared out of the door the first night. Stand up till him, Billy, says the Irishman. We'll see fair play. Stand up to the gentleman. Billy, says the boss, and his eyes was blazin' like candles. You're going to leave this camp tomorrow morning. You can take your choice. Will you get on to your knees now or later? With that Billy whipped out a knife and rushes at him, but the boss grabs his wrist and gives it a twist and the knife fell onto the floor. The boss holds him like a baby, 
and picks up the knife and throws it into the fire. Now, says he, get on to your knees, quick. And the feller drops on his knees and bellered like a calf. Let's pray, says someone, and the crowd howls. Give us your hand, boss, says the Irishman. You're the top of this gang. The Irishman shoves out his clipper, and the boss takes it in an easy kind of way. My, you ought to have seen that Irishman squirm. Howly mither, he yells, and dances round. What do you think you got? And he goes off looking at his fingers, and the boss stands looking at him and says, You're a nice lot of fellers. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to treat you fair. I know you feel Sunday pretty slow, and I'll try to make it better for you, but I want you to know that I won't have any more row in this camp, and I won't have any man here that can't behave himself. Tomorrow morning, you, pointing at the foreman, and you, Billy, and you, pointing at another chap, leave the camp. And they did, too, though they begged and prayed to let him stay. And by next Sunday we had a lot of papers and books with pictures in em, and a bang-up dinner, and everything went nice. I am liking it fine. I'm timekeeper and look after the store, but I drive the team, too, every chance I get, and I'd rather do that a long way. But many a night, I tell you, when the boss and me is alone, we talk about you and the institute fellers, and the boss— Well, that's all, said Kate, but isn't it terrible? Aren't they dreadful? Poor fellows, said Mrs. Murray. It's a very hard life for them. But isn't it awful, Auntie? They might kill him, said Kate. Yes, dear, said Mrs. Murray, in a soothing voice, but it sounds worse to us, perhaps, than it is. Mrs. Murray had not lived in the Indian lands for nothing. Oh, if anything should happen to him, said Kate, with sudden agitation. We must just trust him to the great keeper, said Mrs. Murray quietly, in whose keeping all are safe, whether there or here. Then, going to her valise, she took out a letter and handed it to Kate, saying, That's his last to me. You can look at it, Kate. Kate took the letter and put it in her desk. I think perhaps we had better go down now, she said. I expect Colonel Thorpe has come. I think you will like him. He seems a little rough, but he is a gentleman and has a true heart. And they went downstairs. It is the mark of a gentleman to know his kind. He has an instinct for what is fine and offers ready homage to what is worthy. Anyone observing Colonel Thorpe's manner of receiving Mrs. Murray would have known him at once for a gentleman. For when that little lady came into the drawing-room, dressed in her decent silk gown, with soft white lace at her throat, bearing herself with sweet dignity, and stepping with dainty grace on her toes, after the manner of the fine ladies of the old school, and not after the flat-footed heel-first modern style, the colonel abandoned his usual careless manner, and rose and stood rigidly at attention. Auntie, this is my friend, Colonel Thorpe, said Kate. Proud to know you, madam, said the colonel, with his finest military bow. And I am glad to meet Colonel Thorpe. I have heard so much of him through my friends. And she smiled at him with such genuine kindliness that the gallant colonel lost his heart at once. Your friends have been doing me proud, he said, bowing to her and then to Kate. Oh, you needn't look at me, said Kate. You don't imagine I have been saying nice things about you. She has other friends that think much of you. 
yes said mrs murray ranald has often spoken of you colonel thorpe and of your kindness said mrs murray the colonel looked doubtful well i don't know that he thinks much of me i have had to be pretty hard on him why asked mrs murray well i reckon you know him pretty well began the colonel well she ought to said kate she brought him up and his many virtues he owes mostly to my dear aunt's training oh kate you must not say that said mrs murray gravely then said the colonel you ought to be proud of him you produced a rare article in the commercial world and that is a man of honor he is not for sale and i want to say that i feel as safe about the company's money out there as if i was settin on it but he needs watching added the colonel he needs watching what do you mean said mrs murray whose pale face had flushed with pleasure and pride at the colonel's praise of ranald too much philanthropy said the colonel bluntly the british american coal and lumber company ain't a benevolent society exactly i'm glad you spoke of that colonel thorpe i want to ask you about some things that i don't understand i know that the company are criticizing some of ranald's methods but i don't know why exactly now colonel cried kate stand to your guns well said the colonel i'm going to execute a masterly retreat as they used to say when a fellow ran away i'm going to get behind my company they claim you see that ranald ain't a paying concern but how said mrs murray then the colonel enumerated the features of ranald's management most severely criticized by the company he paid the biggest wages going the cost of supplies for the camps was greater and the company's stores did not show as large profits as formerly and of course said the colonel the first aim of any company is to pay dividends and the manager that can't do that has to go then mrs murray proceeded to deal with the company's contentions going at once with swift intuition to the heart of the matter you were speaking of honor a moment ago colonel there is such a thing in business certainly that's why i put that young man where he is that means that the company expect him to deal fairly by them that's about it and being a man of honor i suppose he will also deal fairly by the men and by himself i guess so said the colonel i don't pretend to understand the questions fully but from ranald's letters i have gathered that he did not consider that justice was being done either to the men or to the company for instance in the matter of stores i may be wrong in this you will correct me colonel i understand it was the custom to charge the men in the camps for the articles they needed prices three or four times what was fair well said the colonel i guess things were a little high but that's the way every company does and then i understand that the men were so poorly housed and fed and so poorly paid that only those of the inferior class could be secured well i guess they weren't very high class said the colonel that's right enough but colonel if you secure a better class of men and you treat them in a fair and honorable way with some regard to their comfort you ought to get better results in work shouldn't you well that's so said the colonel there never was such an amount of timber got out with the same number of men since the company started work 
but yet the thing don't pay and that's the trouble the concern must pay or go under yes that's quite true colonel said mrs murray but why doesn't your concern pay well you see there's no market trade is dull and we can't sell to advantage but surely that is not your manager's fault said mrs murray and surely it would be an unjust thing to hold him responsible for that but the company don't look at things in that light said the colonel you see they figure it this way stores ain't bringin in the returns they used to the camps cost a little more wages are a little higher there ain't nothing coming in and they say well that chap out there means well with his reading rooms for the mill hands his library in the camp and that sort of thing but he ain't sharp enough sharp enough that's a hard word colonel said mrs murray earnestly and it may be a cruel word but if ranald were ever so sharp he really couldn't remove the real cause of the trouble you say he has produced larger results than ever before and if the market were normal there would be larger returns then it seems to me colonel that if ranald suffers he is suffering not because he has been unfaithful or incompetent but because the market is bad and that i am certain you would not consider fair you must not be too hard on us said the colonel so far as i am concerned i think you are right but it is a hard thing to make business men look at these things in anything but a business way but it should not be hard colonel said mrs murray with sad earnestness to make even business men see that when honor is the price of dividends the cost is too great and without giving the colonel an opportunity of replying she went on with eager enthusiasm to show how the laws of the kingdom of heaven might be applied to the great problems of labor and it would pay colonel she cried it would pay in money but far more it would pay in what cannot be bought for money in the lives and souls of men for unjust and uncharitable dealing injures more the man who is guilty of it than the man who suffers from it in the first instance madam answered the colonel gravely i feel you are right and i should be glad to have you address the meeting of our shareholders called for next month to discuss the question of our western business do you mean ranald's position asked kate well i rather think that will come up then said mrs murray unconsciously claiming the colonel's allegiance i feel sure there will be one advocate at least for fair and honorable dealing at that meeting and the colonel was far too gallant to refuse to acknowledge the claim but simply said you may trust me madam i shall do my best i only wish papa were here said kate he is a shareholder isn't he and wish he could hear you auntie but he and mamma won't be home for two weeks oh kate cried mrs murray you make me ashamed and i fear i have been talking too much at this point harry came in i just came over to send you to bed he said kissing his aunt and greeting the others you are all to look your most beautiful to-morrow well said the colonel slowly that won't be hard for the rest of you and it don't matter much for me and i hope we ain't goin to lose our music no indeed cried kate sitting down at the piano while the colonel leaned back in his easy chair and gave himself up to an hour's unmingled delight you have given more pleasure than you know to a wayfaring man he said as he bade her good-night
come again when you are in town you are always welcome colonel thorpe she said you may count me here every time said the colonel then turning to mrs murray with a low bow he said you have given me some ideas madam that i hope may not be quite unfruitful and as for that young man of yours well i guess you ain't hurt his cause any we'll put up a fight anyway i am glad to have met you colonel thorpe said mrs murray and i am quite sure you will stand up for what is right and with another bow the colonel took his leave now harry you must go too said kate you can see your aunt again after to-morrow and i must get my beauty sleep besides i don't want to stand up with a man gaunt and hollow-eyed for lack of sleep and she bundled him off in spite of his remonstrances but eager as kate was for her beauty sleep the light burned late in her room and long after she had seen mrs murray snugly tucked in for the night she sat with ranald's open letter in her hand reading it till she almost knew it by heart it told among other things of his differences with the company in regard to stores wages and supplies and of his efforts to establish a reading-room at the mills and a library at the camps but there was a sentence at the close of the letter that kate read over and over again with the light of a great love in her eyes and with a cry of pain in her heart the magazines and papers that kate sends are a great boon dear kate what a girl she is i know none like her and what a friend she has been to me ever since the day she stood up for me at quebec you remember i told you about that what a guy i must have been but she never showed a sign of shame i often think of that now how different she was from another i see it now as i could not then a man is a fool once in his life but i have got my lesson and still have a good true friend often she read and long she pondered the last words it was so easy to read too much into them a good true friend she looked at the words till the tears came then she stood up and looked at herself in the glass now young woman she said severely be sensible and don't dream dreams until you are asleep and to sleep you must go forthwith but sleep was slow to come and strange to say it was the thought of the little woman in the next room that quieted her heart and sent her to sleep and next day she was looking her best and when the ceremony was over and the guests were assembled at the wedding breakfast there were not a few who agreed with harry when in his speech he threw down his gage as champion for the peerless bridesmaid whom for the hour alas too short he was privileged to call his lady fair for while kate had not the beauty of form and face and the fascination of manner that turned men's heads and made mamie the envy of all her set there was in her a wholesomeness a fearless sincerity a noble dignity and that indescribable charm of a true heart that made men trust her and love her as only good women are loved at last the brilliant affair was all over the rice and the old boots were thrown the farewell words spoken and tears shed and then the aunts came back to the empty and disordered house well i am glad for mamie said aunt frank it is a good match dear mamie 
replied Aunt Murray, with a gentle sigh. I hope she will be happy. After all, it is much better, said Aunt Frank. Yes, it is much better, replied Mrs. Murray. And then she added, How lovely Kate looked! What a noble girl she is! But she did not explain, even to herself, much less to Aunt Frank, the nexus of her thoughts. End of chapter 23